Welcome to The Jury Is Out, a podcast for trial attorneys who want to sharpen their skills and better serve their clients. Your co-hosts are John Simon, founder of The Simon Law Firm, Tim Cronin, personal injury trial attorney at The Simon Law Firm, and St. Louis attorney Eric Veith. Welcome to another episode of The Jury Is Out. I'm Eric Feast. I'm John Simon. And we're here with a guest, Brad Winters. Hi, Brad. Good afternoon. You have a history with John. Why don't you talk about how you guys So met? Brad hired me for my first law job many, many years ago, 37 what years ago. What year did you ago? get out, John? 86. 86. And we worked together at Coburn Croft and Putzel. That's right. You left before I did. Yeah, I left in uh, 88. And then ended up back with those guys and uh, tried to get away from them. And then they oh merged no, you back oh no, together. Oh no, I was, <laughs> they uh, sorted out all the missing office supplies and I was exonerated. But then, uh, of course, Thompson Mitchell became Thompson Coburn. I got to practice with him again and on we went. So, in prep for this, I said something like, I don't know how this came up. I said, don't take your lawyer tactics home. You might win the argument and you'll lose the relationship. Yeah. And then you quoted some Shakespeare. And I know you had some interest in that. You want to say a bit about Shakespeare and lawyers? I think the quote we were talking about was from Taming of the Shrew, uh, where Shakespeare wrote, do as adversaries do in law, strive mightily, but eat and drink as friends. And um, we were talking earlier that we all benefited from that. I mean, we're all that uh, 80s vintage. And we had opportunities to sit down with the people that we practice with and our adversaries as well. You know, if you're on the road for a deposition and hopefully getting along with the other side, and I typically did, you'd sit down and you'd talk about the case a little, but talk about families and trials and daring do in trial and discovery. And it was good advice. And the other thing we talked about, of course, is that Shakespeare's plays, I think 20 of them had trials in them. That's two thirds of his works. He knew something about trials and he knew something about drama and there's a great deal of overlap. I mean, I always approach trial as theater with opening and a plot and characters to develop and characters to cast like experts. And ultimately, you got to give the jury exciting conclusion or climax where boy gets girl or murderer is revealed. And if you don't know how the story's going to end, it's hard to figure out how it's going to start and how it's going to develop. And again, all these characters that we put on as witnesses have to be developed as speakers of truth, tellers of lies, victims, and maybe the best advice. I ever got about prepping a witness. And that is that witnesses do best when they're the same person on cross as they were on direct. And you've seen this all the time with this glib, uh, sort of casual, very comfortable expert who rattles off the basis of their opinions and their opinions into a reasonable degree of medical certainty. And then you get up to cross-examine them and their arms fold and their answers are clipped and they have a suspicious edge to them. And they come off so disingenuous, I think. And I always told witnesses that the key is to be the same person on cross. Even tone of voice. Exactly. Demeanor, tone of voice, all of that. Yeah. It's in my prep outline is just the importance of being the same person on cross that you were on direct. And it seems like the same rule would apply to being the same attorney you are in the courtroom as you are in real life. There's something about when a jury, and they have amazing senses of, you know, you're not being trustworthy or you're not being credible. You need to be who you seem to be. And if you don't believe in your case, I think they see that. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, it's whole thing is being yourself, being authentic. People see that. You can see that in a hurry. And that's what I've always been taught and what I've taught, be the best version of yourself. And somebody said, well, what if you're an asshole? <laughs> and I said, well, I guess be the best one you can. Yeah. <laughs> be the best asshole you can. But there's so much of a benefit to being nice, you know, being respectful, being professional, 
I mean, it's what everybody should do, but you know. The, yeah, but wait a minute, John, yeah. you say that because you are nice. In saying it, what you're saying is you got to be yourself. You make the really good point that if you're a nice person, be a nice person. And if you're not, you got to modulate your behavior so you don't aggravate anybody, but you're trapped inside yourself and you got to be yourself. And when I tried my first case, the only trial lawyer I'd really never seen was on television. After a while, you know, you try to see what works, what doesn't work. Most lawyers, at least the successful ones that I know, will naturally migrate back to just a very natural state, which is, you know, who you are. But Eric's right. I mean, jurors can smell a fraud. You are the second guest that we tried to recruit who said something like, why would you want me on there? I don't know if I have much to say. <laughs> and then after a little more pushing, you go, oh, and I wrote a book about being a lawyer. And I'm thinking, so the first one was Tom Strong. He said the same thing. He said, oh, why would you want to have me on here? And then confesses he wrote a book. Well, you know, let me do a commercial for that podcast because I listened to it getting ready for today. And if you're a trial lawyer, you have got to set time aside. I don't care if it's on an airplane or a ride home or whenever to listen to both volumes, I guess, of Tom's uh, podcast. It's extraordinary. And he's extraordinary. I mean, what a human being, what an exceptional human being. Since that podcast, I was at a bar function where he was involved in presenting the Tom Strong Award to an attorney in St. Louis. And the person that introduced Tom Strong was talking about how in the last six months, he'd actually participated in a trial. And it was a case where he was the party in the case and didn't approve of how his attorney was handling things. <laughs> and in day two or three, just dismissed him and took over the trial. <laughs> and I think he's, is he 93 or 92? Yeah. Or, you know? yeah. And so I thought, wow, you know, maybe I have uh, 30 or so decent years left. Yeah. <laughs> Before I don't somebody, think so. But, before uh, somebody starts pushing you, the client starts pushing you aside and yeah. arguing the case for you. Well, Brad, you also mentioned, oh, we, we ought to have a good conversation. We've got 120 years of experience among the three of us. So I know that we're going to occasionally dig backwards and maybe compare some things, how they used to be and how they are. And I think there's a, a nice blend of things, some things that the principle still remains, even though it might manifest in a different way. Yeah. When we were talking, Eric, we were sort of under the general heading of nuggets that we've picked up along the way or things that we've seen or good advice we've received from friends or colleagues or mentors. You know, it occurred to me with some sadness that a lot of the places where I learned the most important lessons that I learned as a young lawyer just don't exist anymore. And it occurred to me driving down today that this is 2022, for those of you listening 50 years from now, but this is 2022. And the first lawyers born in the 21st century are starting law school in September or maybe last year. I mean, something around right now. So, John, you and Eric will be uh, taking depositions defended by lawyers born in the 21st century in three or four years. But they have no idea what it was like the way we had no idea what it was like with white wigs. It's so dramatically different because when we started, the fax machine was cutting edge technology. Nobody had a computer. And if there was a computer, it was in a room that was locked someplace. Now, you know, we've got one in our briefcase. Everybody does. In 1990, I was doing a lot of the brief writing for the firm I was at. I brought a computer in. With a forklift, was it? Yeah. Uh, no, it was, uh, <laughs> I got a comments from a bunch of attorneys who said, why would an attorney have a computer? That's how far we've come in that amount of time. When I started, the online research was just beginning and it was incredibly expensive and you had to get permission from the client and it had to be significant and we had it and didn't use it. Instead, we'd go to the library with the cart, stack the books open to the case that you wanted on the cart, and then you'd have somebody copy them and take the copies and highlight them. And now we don't have a library. It's amazing to think the number of times I needed a case, it was missing in the firm's library. And you're running all around the firm looking at everybody's desk. Boy, that's nice. Nowadays, you know, it might be two in the morning. You can just go online and find anything you need. 
But that's as alien to lawyers who will be uh, starting law school this September as the Civil War or the Revolutionary War was to us. I mean, that's just from an era that they have no frame of reference for. And again, it was terrible in many respects, but wonderful in others. We were commenting earlier that back in the day, I had to get up from my desk to go communicate with one of the partners in the firm. And now lawyers have to go to their desk to do it. And just that simple act of getting out of your chair, trust me, listeners, this happened. You had to get out of your chair in the 1980s, walk down the hall and actually physically get into the space of someone to visit with them and talk. And when you did that, you'd pick up something. You'd pick up a fleck. You'd see the way their desk looked or the way they were preparing for trial, or they'd ask you a question or ask you to go get something. And that all went into the matrix that we were all building that became our knowledge base now that we're in our 60s. And a lot of those were chance gatherings. You're passing somebody in the hall and then, hey, what's going on? And they tell you, now you're standing there for 20 minutes having a good conversation about something that's important. And quite often, you're talking about their case, you learn something that's important to one of your cases. You know, how we learn. It's things that you wouldn't even think about. For instance, walking to court with an older attorney to hear a motion, just to watch the motion. You talk about the motion on the way there. You'll hear who the judge is and the judge's disposition, personality. You'll learn about that, what you can expect from the other lawyer, how the case is going to be argued. And then you get to watch it. You know, you're going to be in a courtroom with other lawyers. You're going to meet and talk. And then the, the walk back from the courthouse, you know, all of that. One of the things, too, years ago, I started going to court less and I started having the younger lawyers go and it was, well, I'm only going to go, you know, sort of when I have to, when it's a really important motion. And I did that for a little while. And then finally, there was a group of cases where we were in court a couple of days a week for months. And I had to be there. And I started going to court two, three times a week. And what happened was I met lawyers I hadn't seen in 10 years, five years. And I talked to them and caught up with them. It was good for business. It was good personally, professionally just being out there and seeing people. And these are folks that had I not gotten out of my office and gone to the physical courtroom, I still wouldn't have seen them up to now. We'll get past this lamentation segment in a minute, but John, you and I were treated to a happy hour tradition at the uh, Lawyers Club at the old Mercantile Center where we would go up there on Friday nights. And if you recall, Sonny, the famous bartender up there, and we'd all gather. And lawyers would come in with their, you know, ties loose around their neck from a long deposition or a day in court, and you'd hear stories and daring do, and people would throw out ideas, and they'd one-up each other with stories of things they had seen, or they had seen some of the more senior folks who trained them that they had done and seen. And that's why I tip my hat to you two for these extraordinary podcasts, because we'll lose those stories in a generation if they aren't captured. And, you know, I'm not sure what I have to offer other than I got good advice, and I heard important Same ideas in those environments. And as we said, those happy hours don't happen the way they used to. And COVID's changed everything and email has made yeah. us more remote. You know, this whole COVID thing has really, I think, taken what was already happening and just fast forwarded it. When John talks about going to a hearing docket, those were times where, yeah, you watch and you listen to other people and you see it's dramatic, the difference between the people who are really good at bringing the argument and those who aren't. We have a judge here in St. Louis, Robert Durker. One minute into the argument, he would ask a question that would destroy where that argument was going. And it just made you see it very starkly, the difference between being well-prepared and maybe not. Just like in court, like we go to division one to argue a motion and I would sit there with one motion and there would be 20, 30 motions being argued that day. I might be number 11 or number 15. So what I would get to do as a young lawyer, I would sit there and watch a dozen other arguments and watch the lawyers, as you say, Eric, on each side, and you'd see how they argued it, how the judge responded to it. And now I do it now. I get on the Zoom and there might be whoever is on there. When my motion is done, I hit the button and I'm off. 
I don't talk to the lawyer who's with me at the office about the motion. I just hit the button and it's gone. Five years from now, when we're explaining it to the lawyers who are starting law school here in September of 2022, they won't believe you that this happened, that there was a room full of these rickety old wooden chairs and you had to go up early because there was a sign-up sheet physically. So you had to sit there and you would sit and listen to upwards of 10, 12, maybe more. I loved it. I recall specifically one time where there's an argument and it's like an affirmative defense that it's waived if not pled. And I'm going, whoa, 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 I got one of these. Hang on. Yes. Oh, yeah. And I walk up there and I'd listen and I'd make a note. I said, I got to go fix this. But again, another venue, another mechanism. So what do we do? Is this just, as you said, us lamenting that these opportunities are no longer available? What is one to do? It's the right question, I think. How do we fill that gap? And, And look, you hear lawyers like Tom Strong, not so much how they did it, but why they did it and what motivated them and their thinking at the time. You know, you've got a great mix in the uh, library you're building here, some nuts and bolts stuff, but also some, you know, pretty ethereal, high-level inspiration, literally, which we all got, too, from these lawyers. Not just the how-to, it's the why-to and the scent of blood in our nose that good lawyers were able to One of the things that I see that happens almost all the time, somebody will come back from a deposition. And what's the first thing you do? You come back from an intense two- or three-hour deposition, you spent two days preparing for it, You walk in an office and the first thing you want to do is go into the first lawyer you see whose office is next to you (laughs) and you start talking about, you know what happened at this deposition? Why do it? It breaks. You know, when there's a break in a deposition, I'll do it all the time. I'll walk down the hall in the first office. I'll run into Erica's office or Tim's and, you know, this is what happened. And they'll say, oh, yeah, well, what about this? And certainly you learn some stuff, but it's just fun. It's fun sharing what you're doing with somebody else who you work with. So here, let me give you a perfect example. This morning, I got to the office about two hours before we started the podcast. And Johnny, my son, is pulling me into my office because he's got something coming up in a deposition, a case that's going to trial in two weeks. And he's asking me my opinion about how he should handle this and whether he should do A or B. And I gave him advice that he didn't like and didn't agree with. And I think ultimately he's not going to take. But he said, I talked to another lawyer here about it, Tim, who's you know on the podcast. And I said, well, what did Tim say? And Tim's answer sounded a whole lot better than mine, <laughs> than what I said. So I just said, you know what? That does sound like a better way to handle it. You should listen to him and not me on this. But does that happen if he's remote or handling it at home? It's hard for that to happen without being physically present with everybody. And I think that's, it's not just the law. I think it's everything and everywhere. We're just so glued to screens and our phones. And I think a lot of that time isn't even productive, to be honest with you. And again, you know, we're not getting here. Old with, man you know, talk. Old man talk. I think there's a really important principle that overlays all this is that you need an atmosphere of trust in order to have those kinds of conversations. And there's something about it where you have a give and take and a willingness to go into the conversation, be changed as a result of it. And there's some firms that I've been at that don't have that so well, where it's more top down. And there's other firms where that's invited and encouraged number of times where somebody would say, I got this problem, come on with me, and the three of us are going to go across the street and we're going to talk about this. And variably we come up with, you know, may not have the answer, but I believe I got a plan. But before we leave the bad news and get to the good news part of the good news, bad news story, the other problem is that fewer cases are tried, fewer cases get tried. And John, you and I, I think, have had this conversation that you can't do great work in discovery until you've had a couple of trials, until you've pulled out that deposition and eh, the question doesn't exactly allow you to do that impeachment the way you thought it did. (laughs) And you've got to go through that sick feeling a couple of times before you really get those tight deposition questions and that instinct. 
you know, the one piece of advice I got long ago about depositions is, you know, never ask the question, are there any others? The way that comes up is if you ask a plaintiff, for example, tell me every problem you have. Well, I got this problem with my neck and I have this problem with my legs. And you talk about that and this emotional issue and talk about that. Okay. Are there any others? No. Well, you get to trial and here comes another one and you say, wait a minute, I took your deposition. Do you remember me asking you, are there any others? Well, yeah, but I don't know what went on in the 35 pages before that. You know, you got to make the list. Okay, here's the list that I have. You said your neck, your back, you've had PTSD, you've got this problem and that problem. Now, are there any others? You don't know that until you get the sick feeling in the courtroom that that deposition just isn't quite ready for prime time. Yeah, you keep looking through it. I know they said something better than that. Well, because it's right. You have the impression that it was covered. Yeah, right. And then you right. go back and flip. It's because we don't really listen. We're looking at the next question, but it's all stuff you learn by doing it. I think it puts more importance and emphasis on mentoring. What we dealt with early in our careers was sort of the institution and the practice itself took the place of an individual mentor. You were just exposed to it. Where you were, there were other lawyers. Where you were, there were other arguments. Where you were, there was people talking about the issues over drinks or whatever. And I think that this teaching, this mentoring still, it has to take place. There's nothing more important. You know, 90% of what I've learned, I've learned from either screwing stuff up or from watching other people who knew what they were doing. When those opportunities are no longer here, I think what you have to do is be more deliberate about how you're going to learn these things. 20 years ago, if you talked to me about one-on-one -on -one mentoring, I'd roll my eyes. You know, I'm like, what? You know, just get to work and you'll learn stuff. You know, just start working. But I think it needs to be more deliberate nowadays. I really do. We need to mentor mentoring. I mean, it's now a unique discipline unto itself. Because, you know, law firms are set up to reward, you know, good work with more work, particularly in larger firms. But I have people shadow me as a mediator. You know, it's a pretty organic, natural process. But we'll walk out of a room and they'll say, why did you do that? And I'll tell them and they'll either add it to their repertoire or reject it. And John, you mentioned walking back from court after a hearing with the lawyer who had argued an important motion. That is, I mean, that's gold where they explain to you, here's why that was important. And here's why we had to do that. It could be as simple as making a record for appeal, or it could be as simple as if it's a federal court and that judge has the case, I need the judge to start hearing this now. We know we're not going to get summary judgment, but I want him and his clerk to see these. I mean, there's reasons for what we do. And the why is the stuff that if you don't have somebody at your shoulder talking in your ear, you're not going to learn it. And it's not the legal issues necessarily. It's, okay, we lost that. Now what are we going to do? How are we going to change the case? How are we going to recover from that? It's all just responding. I'm putting myself in the position of a young lawyer just starting out. You got to face facts. You're not going to be with lawyers all the time. You're going to be doing things remotely, but you really need to be in a work situation where whoever it is you're working for is going to take the time to take your calls, to meet with you, to talk to you about these things. And I tell younger lawyers that law students, law clerks who are job searching, they might be getting more money from one firm, but are you going to learn anything? How soon are you going to learn it? What are you going to be doing at year one, two, or three? And the big question is, who at that firm are you going to be working with? Because most of these lawyers that we know, and if it's somebody who's going to take the time to spend time with them, I'm telling them, look, that's where you need to go. How often are you asking them, are you pretty good at this? And they go, I've been doing it for 20 years. And my thought is like, but are you good at it? <laughs> because just because you've been doing it, you might be doing it the same wrong way over and over. And I think that's really critical that you test your procedures and your tactics by talking to other attorneys and seeing if they work, or maybe somebody's got a better idea. How often have I figured out there's a better way to do the thing that I've been doing? Well, if you listen to enough of these podcasts or any legal education medium, you're going to hear good lawyers disagree. 
on what may seem to be some pretty basic stuff. And you got to get that in your diet somewhere. You have to hear both sides because there's incredibly successful lawyers who are doing things 180 degrees different. And yet they're doing some things that every successful lawyer is doing. And so it's that sifting process going through that and seeing how many times a good lawyer says you got to do this. So Brad, how do we learn as young lawyers realizing how things have changed with the technology? What do you say? What advice would you give the new lawyers knowing they're going to be doing a lot of things remotely or maybe they're doing everything remote? How do you learn? Certainly for litigators, I mean, some things still are available. When I was a young lawyer, I'd go up and watch trials, go up and watch for two hours, move around if there's a couple of cases going. See good lawyers, see bad lawyers in action. Yeah, that's just as important, isn't it? Arguably more. You know, you can't tell uh, how the magician did the trick if they're really talented, but if they're bad, you might figure it out. Or if you see a lawyer do something inappropriate or not terribly conducive, turn their back on the jury, walk back to counsel table, and you'll see jurors look at each other or roll their eyes. Yeah. I've seen that. Get out there. See it. Watch it. If there's a deposition that's being taken, go and take notes. But you've got to see it happen. And there's no substitute for trial experience, even if you're just a spectator. Watch it happen. Watch a cross-examination come off the tracks. There's no more sickening feeling. Everybody hates that. The people who are watching, the jurors, the judge, even the witness doesn't like it when the cross-examination of them isn't going. It's a miserable thing to watch, and it'll be a good lesson to do everything you can to avoid that feeling, but also the nuts and bolts. What actually went wrong here? What did this lawyer do that this lawyer shouldn't have done? Was there a question that they didn't know the answer to that they shouldn't have asked? And the analysis that you're going to do if you see bad things happen in the courtroom is going to be important uh, data points, part of your learning. Brad, I really appreciate what you said about the fact that we've captured some interviews of some folks who others can listen to. They can, any time of day, they can listen to Tom Strong or any of dozens of other guests, including you. It's an honor. I know John and I both really enjoyed it. We look forward to this. This is a learning experience for us. We're helping other people coming in and, you know, helping us learn more about how to be a lawyer. But I guess it's becoming ever more increasingly important to me that we take advantage of each hour. There's something about it, not because we're getting older. It's just that that hour, you know, you can either blow it, throw it away or use it. When you're born, you got a thousand months. That's about it. And there's something about appreciating the power and the fleeting opportunities of the moment that I think has been just more and more obvious to me. Well, you're right. Nothing like age to bring that home to you. When I open up the bar journal and see the names of folks who've uh, passed away, and it seems like every week or month I recognize more and more of them. But in mediations now, sometimes if I'm late in the game in a day and there's an individual who's thinking about taking a settlement or not, and it's a good proposal and it's a plaintiff and somebody of my vintage 50s, 60s, 70s, I, you know, I say to them, look, I said, instead of thinking about the time value of money, take a moment and think about the non-money value of time. If you don't take this settlement, you know, you're heading to trial in 10 months and then you're heading to an appeal 10, 12, whatever months after that. This assumes that you don't get reversed and have to go back and wait another 10 months to start a trial again and rack all this up. And so, you know, just factor in time. And you're right. You know, it's every day's a gift. You learned some important things being a mediator, including what color tie to wear, apparently. (laughs) We were talking about this story. I mean, I'm in a whole new world now with mediation because it really is different than lawyering as a discipline. But there's so many wives' tales, so many ideas, so many things floating around. I had a mediation recently, and I was telling Eric that a lawyer from back east, as we say here in the Midwest, was chiding me for wearing a tie that was red, I think, and he was wearing a purple tie. And he says, that's the color of conciliation. I took a course. Was he serious? Yeah, totally serious. And I said, well, you know, I feel like an idiot. I mean, I've been wasting all my time trying to understand uh, Abraham Maslow 
Maslow's A Study of Human Motivation. And all I had to do was go to the tie counter. Yeah. And I felt like a fool. <laughs> but you know what? If you believe it, it's true, I guess. And yeah. if a lawyer is going to go to the trouble of putting on a tie that he thinks will communicate, I'm here to reach an agreement, there's some virtue in that. So what about remote versus in-person? That's got to be a big deal in mediation, I would think. We all know that starting, I guess, in March of 2020, our profession evolved five years in the span of about 30 days. I mean, we had the world shut down, but we couldn't. And so we had to figure out what was next. And so Zoom, which we would have slowly integrated into our lives, or online virtual communications, hearings, depositions, mediations, were thrust upon us. We had no choice. It's nowhere near as enjoyable. And there's certain benefits that you get in person, but um, online mediations are not only better, they're often the difference between success and failure better. In some cases, I simply don't know how we did it in person. I don't know how we did construction cases with one owner and seven or eight contractors in six or seven different rooms around the suite because you spend three minutes changing rooms. I spend two hours just walking between rooms. I mean, not to mention parties come from faraway places. Your practice really can be a national practice. You don't need to go there. You can mediate anything anywhere. Well, it certainly made mediations or cases in other cities. I think it's opened up a whole other population of mediators, made us available to them. I hear all the time, and this it's not wrong. Lawyers will say, well, forcing somebody to get on an airplane, come to town, sit down, focus on the case, meet with their clients, spend some concerted time, come in. That helps with a small H. It's easy to leave when all you have to do is push the button. (laughs) (laughs) Thank goodness. I haven't had any levers yet, but I don't know that that statistically is true, at least not in my experience. I think people who come into mediation in the right frame of mind and with clients properly prepared, you know, they're going to get the same result, whether they're in person or whether they're online. Brad, we're going to have to take a pause in this conversation at this point. Thank you for this conversation so far. Oh, it's been great. Thanks so much. All right. This has been another episode of The Jury Is Out. I'm Eric Veith. I'm John Simon. See you next time. The Jury Is Out is brought to you by The Simon Law Firm. Share your thoughts with John, Tim, and Eric at comments at thejuryisout.law. Subscribe today because the best lawyers never stop learning.